What a wonderful morning to worship the Lord. We want to thank everybody for being here this morning, especially we want to welcome all of our guests. We want you to know that you are indeed our honored guests, and we are privileged that you are here. And we would ask that you make sure, please, that before you leave here today, if you are visiting amongst us as our guest, that you would please make out a visitor's card. You should have gotten one of those earlier. If you did not, we would be glad to provide you with one. We would also encourage you to pick up a bulletin. There is an article in the bulletin that is there specifically designed for our visitors that you might get to know us a little bit better. And the last thing I'd like to encourage you to do if you are a visitor amongst us is to please take out your Bibles and follow along in this morning's lesson. We're all about the Bible. No doubt about that. I will tell you right up front, as a preacher, as a human being, I make mistakes. God doesn't. So please make sure you follow along in his word because his word is perfect. And speaking of that word, this morning I would ask everybody to please turn as we begin to the gospel according to John chapter 16. The gospel according to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 occurs in the middle of a section of scripture wherein Jesus is meeting with his disciples that last evening before he is crucified on Friday morning. He has met with them and he has washed their feet. He's taught them a lot of invaluable lessons. And in John 16, in that context, he has something else to tell them. Again, the night before his crucifixion. John 16, verses 19 through 22. Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. See, Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. He knew what his disciples were going to go through. And he said, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. Watch this. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Jesus was going to be gone over the course of three days, but he was going to come back. He was going to be there with his disciples. And he said, when I come back and you, you see me again, he said, you're going to have a joy that nothing will ever take from you again. Yeah, you're going to lose some joy. You're not going to have a lot of joy over these next few days. But when I come back, I'm going to give you a joy that nothing in the world can take away from you. Jesus explained to his disciples that he would give them a joy like his. In fact, it would be his joy. It would be a joyful fulfillment. It would be a joy on the inside that even when something as final and horrible and fatal as one's own crucifixion was about to happen, they could still have joy. John chapter 17 and verse 13. Jesus, again, 
He, he knows he's going to be crucified, but, but he's still got joy and he wants to share that. Even his own crucifixion could not rob him of some joy on the inside. And so this morning, the question I have for all of us, do you, and I can't answer it for you, do you as an individual, not the person beside you, behind you, around you, or in front of you, you as an individual, do you have that constant, confident and continual joy in your everyday life? Do you have it? Do you have that unbreakable, unshakable, untakeable joy and security no matter what? When you turn on the evening news, when your doctor or some beloved family member or your boss gives you the bad news, do you still have that joy? If not, then the question becomes for us, how do I get it? How do I get it? How do I keep it? How do I maintain it? We could all use more, if you could use more joy in your life, raise your hand. If everybody here doesn't have their hand up, I want to talk to you after the sermon's over. The question is, Jesus promised it, how do we get it? How do we keep it? How do we maintain it? That joy that he said, I'll give you, nobody will ever take it away from you. It cannot be taken from you ever again. So we're going to talk about it this morning. To begin with, I want to share with you the story of a certain New Testament character. I want to talk to you about a man in the Bible whom the Bible gives absolutely no indication whatsoever had that type of joy in his early adulthood. As a young man, the Bible never once indicates that he had any such sort of joy. But later on, he admitted that he had learned the secret. He had learned the secret of being content no matter what. He had learned the secret of maintaining that joy even in the face of the most horrific circumstances and situations. He learned the secret of obtaining and maintaining a joy which the world could not take away from him no matter what. I want that kind of joy in my life. That man's name, as you may have guessed, was Saul of Tarsus. Later on, he became known as the Apostle Paul, but as we see him as that young man where we don't see any joy in his life, Saul of Tarsus, I want us to understand a few things about him early on in life. He had grown up extremely religious. He was a very religious man. He was spiritually trained under one of the best spiritual teachers of his day. He was highly zealous, highly devoted, and indeed so dedicated to the religion of his upbringing, he was willing to kill for that religion. He was convicted. He was zealous. He was serious. Also, as a younger adult, he was connected to one of the most powerful religious organizations on the planet. He was connected and not only did he have their ears, 
Not only did they know each other well, but he had their backing and support to travel the known world in order to enforce their will at all costs and with extreme prejudice. He had the authority from them to travel the known world, their backing, and execute their will with extreme prejudice. We see all of this in Acts 22. Please turn there. He tells the story later on in his life about that time we just described in his life, and look what he says. We'll, we'll let you tell him in his words rather than listening to the ones I just gave you. Acts 22, beginning in verse 3. He says, I am indeed a Jew. Acts 22, 3. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought up in this city. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was brought up in the city that is the city of David. The headquarters, if you will, of Judaism. At the heart and soul of it. I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel one of the most recognized teachers of that age. I was taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and I was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death. I persecuted Christians. I was willing to kill for what I believed. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Everything I just told you about Saul is true. You see his connection. You see everything about him. You see, but you don't see any joy. You don't read the word once there in the text. Saul of Tarsus also enjoyed a pedigree, a pedigree which the power and influence of was unparalleled in the ancient world. He had it all going for him. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. And again, he will tell you himself. He had a pedigree to die for. He had one that was unmatched and unparalleled. And he tells you that himself. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in the middle of verse 4. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in the middle of verse 4. Look what it says there. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul said, if there's anybody else that thinks they've got a pedigree, they think that, that, that they are at the top of the heap when it comes to religious things, he said, let me tell you what. <laughs> if I could use an old rap song title, can't touch this. That's, that's basically what Paul's saying. Nobody's got what I got, okay? And he said, I'll tell you something. Look at his list. He says, Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, at the top of the heap. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. You can't get any stricter than that. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, we just read about that. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. How many people could say, according to the old law, they were blameless? Nobody. Paul says, I got y'all me. I got it all. I had it all. But you know what? Despite all of this, despite the pride, the power, the pedigree, the influence, 
the education, the personal training, and the people that he knew in high places in the council. Make a note of this. Despite all of that, you never once see him in that stage of his life being described as having joy or rejoicing. It's not there. Anywhere. You never see the words happy, joyful, or rejoicing connected to Saul of Tarsus until after he did the most amazing thing, the most stunning thing, until he did something absolutely spectacular with all of that power and influence. You know what he did that was so spectacular? He, he tells you. tells you, a matter of fact, right here in Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7, the very next verse. Look what he says. After describing all of those things that were such a big deal that set him apart as the top of the heap. And by the way, we could, if we had time, if you wanted to be here till 1 o'clock, 2 maybe, we could go through each one of those terms and tell you why that was such a big deal in those days. But suffice it to say, for now, he was the top of the heap in every category. He had it all. But he wasn't happy. He didn't have joy. Until he did what he describes in the following verses. Listen to what he says. Follow along. He says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So what I'm talking about just knowing who he was, but deeply knowing Jesus. <coughs> For whom, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things, all of the pedigree, all of the power, all of the connections, all of that stuff I had going for me, all of it. He said, I count it rubbish. You ever left your garbage out in a garbage can or dumpster on a hot week in Oklahoma in August? And, you know, it gets a little noticeable, shall we say, after a while. Paul says, all that stuff that I thought was, was so so precious to me, he said, you know what? It's a bunch of garbage compared to what I found in Christ. I count it as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Remember, he had said I was blameless. I did it. That's the meaning of sinless, different word. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, Paul said, I consider all that garbage, watch this verse 10, that I may know him, not just know of him, but know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Don't miss this. Especially if you want more joy in your life, don't miss this. It was only after Saul of Tarsus sacrificed everything on the altar and gave it to God, let it go, and put Christ at the top of his priority list, put studying God's word at the top of his priority list, put preaching at the top of his priority list. It was only until he put God up there he threw all that other stuff away like last week's garbage and he began seeking and serving and submitting to and suffering for the Lord. It was only then that we find him 
getting this all-consuming, this constant, continual, consummate joy that nothing on earth could take. Nothing. No matter what they did, they couldn't take his joy when he was completely devoted to Jesus Christ. Let me show you that from many passages. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26 all tell the story of Saul's conversion. They all tell and retell that story of when Saul of Tarsus went from having everything and never being joyful to surrendering it all up, counting it as garbage, and then coming to Christ, truly seeking and serving God with his every breath. Turn to me in your Bibles to just one of those, Acts 9. We won't go to his two retellings. We don't need to. Acts chapter 9. But if you want to look at this further later on this afternoon, check out Acts 9, 22 and 6, 26. In Acts chapter 9, we see Saul is going on one of those trips. He's going to Damascus to put Christians under arrest. On the way there, Jesus meets him on the road, as it were. In verse 5, in verse 6, he calls Jesus Lord. He still isn't saved. He apparently believes because he does what the Lord tells him to in verses 6 and following. He still isn't saved. He spends three days without <coughs> food or water, verse 9, praying, verse 11. But he's still not saved. Because we know from Acts 22, 16 that three days later, he has to be baptized to have his sins washed away. He had his sins up until Ananias come to meet him three days later. But at any rate, what I want you to see here is that when Ananias does come to him, and he is baptized, verse 18. Then in verse 19, so when he had received food, Acts 9, 19. When he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he went there to arrest, he spent time with them. He's made a complete turnaround. Then all who heard were amazed, and they said, Is not this he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem, on this name in Jerusalem? And he's come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. They were confounded. There was this incredible change. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Isn't that ironic? The very people who had given him authority to go there now try to kill him. Because he's had a complete turnaround. He's had a complete turnaround because he's put Jesus Christ on his priority list. You know what was number two? Doesn't matter because Jesus was so far at the top that nothing else really mattered. And these Jews that were trying to kill him, verse 13, uh, verse 23 rather, of Acts 9, they would continue to plot against him and his life from then on. But even their plotting against his life would not put the smallest dent in his joy. He wrote about, in Colossians 1.24, he wrote about how in his sufferings for the church, he rejoiced. He said, I rejoice in those sufferings for the church, Colossians 
when he went on and he suffered miserable. Have you ever suffered a miserable infirmity? When Paul suffered an aggravating, painful, miserable infirmity, and when he suffered lingering distresses that long outlasted his prayers for God to remove them, you know what happened? His joy increased. Turn to me to that passage. Turn to me to 2 Corinthians 12. Miserable infirmities and lingering distresses that outlasted his prayers for their removal caused his joy and gladness only to increase. Don't you wish you had that ability? Let me tell you what. You do because you have that same God. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 8. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart. He said, I beg God to take this more than once. And God said to me, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Translation, if I may, God says, it's okay, because you know what? When you have a problem and you rely on me and my grace to get you through it, you're going to get stronger. Trust me. If I may paraphrase that terribly. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then look what Paul says. He says, therefore, most gladly, he's happy. He says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, knowing that God can work through me and for me, when I'm at my weakest, that makes me happy. Not only does he say in that verse that he most gladly will boast, look at the next verse, therefore I take pleasure, he's pleased, he's rejoicing in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I can be so happy in the midst of these things because of God working with me, because I rely on him more. Do you rely on God more when you're hurting or when everything's fine? With me, it's more when I'm hurting, right? You pray more when you're hurting. You pray more when it's this what this talking about. He's in a bad situation. But he's relying on God more, and he realizes he can trust God more, and his faith is growing, and he's getting happier, most gladly. He says, troubles and hard times, bring it. Because God is with me. Brethren, even in the face of the most terrible trials, worst things you can think of, impending imprisonment and sudden death that were all in his not too far distant future, none of those things could take away his unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable joy. Turn to me in your Bibles and let us see this in Acts 20, verses 22 through 24. His joy in the midst of the worst of times could not be lessened, it could not be loosened, it could not be severed from or taken from him. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. The same Bible class, I'd love to hear those pages turn. That means we're following. You trust in God's word and not mine. Let's take God's word. Acts 20, verse 22. He says, And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, I don't know what's going to happen, but except for this one thing, 
that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. The Holy Spirit's telling me every little city that I travel to, as I head to Jerusalem, every time I get the same message, chains and tribulation. Tribulation means these terrible trials, distresses. He said, that's what's coming for me in Jerusalem. But you know what? Couldn't put a dent in his joy. Read the next few verses. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's, what's he saying? Same thing I said to you earlier. His commitment to Christ is so far up on his priority list that he can't even see what comes second. He said these other things don't even matter. They're not even on the list. He said my joy is still with me. It doesn't matter what they do to me. Because I know God. I know where I'm going. I know Jesus. They can take every earthly thing I have away from me, but they cannot take my Lord. And that's where my joy is. The one thing they can't take is the source of my joy. That's how he kept it. In probably the greatest book ever written on the subject of joy and rejoicing, the book of Philippians, Paul, ready to probably die a martyr's death at any moment. Look what he writes. And I wish I had time to read the whole book, but I don't. But I want you to look with me in Philippians 1. Keep in mind, this guy is under house arrest. He's in jail for doing nothing wrong, for preaching the gospel. You know, sometimes when we have somebody that does something to us that we don't consider is unfair, we get bitter, we get angry, Paul got joyful. Look what he says. In Philippians 1, starting at verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. He said, there's some out there that are trying to get to me. They're trying to get under my skin. He says, they're doing it to, to add affliction to my chains. But the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Well, what do I do with this? He feels trying to get under my skin and aggravate me by preaching for a reason other than they ought to. They're seeking to add affliction. They're not sincere. What does he say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, look at this, I rejoice. And I will rejoice. They can't stop me. Can't touch you. Then look what he says. For I know that this will turn out to my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I'll be ashamed, but with all boldness, as all, always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me is, I can say this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I win either way. If I stay, I win, and that makes me happy. If I go, I win, and that makes me happy. There's no downside they cannot take my joy. They can take my life. Okay. They can take all of my awards. 
shirts, and, and I've already considered those rubbish, so no big deal. Take them out to the trash for me. You do me a favor. Because the source of my joy is my Lord. They can't take the joy, no matter what else they take. If we put our joy in material things, can those be taken for Yes. If we put our joy in our health, can that be taken from Yes, it is, is that goes, so goes our joy. But even if they put us to death, they can't take our Jesus. And if our Jesus is the source of our joy and we know him personally and intimately, that's how we keep that joy. Look what he says, same book, Philippians 2, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, he said, if I'm, if I'm, this is it for me. If I'm being poured out, if this is the end of the line, I'm glad. And I'll rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Did they take his joy? Couldn't touch him. He writes later on in the same book. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Philippians 4.4. Brethren, I want you to understand as we read some of these things, you've got to understand this. Please. Paul was not like that because he was some sort of spiritual superman. He didn't have a cape and tights and, you know, the boots and everything and fly around to the first hand. It's not the way it works. Paul was every inch as human as you and I are. Paul hurt. He was persecuted. He had problems. He wasn't a spiritual superman. He wasn't endowed with something that this joy, that nothing could take with him like he's one of a kind. He had the same God and the same source for it that you and I do. And I know this because of what he wrote to the first century congregations of common, normal, everyday, and I don't like that term, common Christians, because I don't think any of us are common. We're peculiar people, right? And, and I don't like the, the, the normal Christians, because I don't think any of us are normal if we're in love with Jesus. So I don't, but you know what I mean, right? The everyday person in the pew. Look what he wrote to them. He wrote to them that they had the same sort of joy, and they just needed to be made aware of it. Look how many times he says something like that. Turn to me to Romans 5. If you think, well, you know, Paul was some spiritual superman. Number one, he wasn't. Impervious to what we go through. But even if you think that way, take a look at what he told the brethren in the congregation in, in first century Rome, in the Lord's church there. They should have this joy too, he said. Look at chapter 5 of Romans, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the source of your joy. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's a reason for joy if you're in the grace of God. And we, look what he says, we, not I, all of them, we, the church there, we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. And he goes down through and tells us why, because of God. The fact is, he said everyday Christians had that same joy. Look in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Start at verse 35. <coughs> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall hard times, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for slaughter. Can these problems separate us from the love of God? He said, no, verse 37. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, whatever it is you're going through right now, nor things to come, whatever the future holds, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why he had joy. They take it all, but they can't take my Lord, so they can't take my joy, because that's where my joy is. In Romans 14, 17, he told us that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church, the kingdom, is all about righteousness, peace, and joy. It, it's a place of joy. It's a place that encourages and exudes joy. In Romans 15, 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In the first century congregation, the Church of Christ in the Galatian region, he wrote to them about the fruit of the Spirit. What did he say one of them was? Love, peace, patience, joy. Colossians, he said, had their joy only strengthened in the midst of their suffering. Colossians 1.11. The Christians in the church in Thessalonica managed to have their joy in the midst of much affliction. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Peter. Wow. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, he's talking to people who have been scattered. They've lost their homes. They've been chased off from their homes. They've been scattered. And he writes to them. He tells them about their inheritance in heaven. Then he says, you're going to go through some fiery trials. Verses 1 through 9 of 1 Peter 1. You're going to go through the fire. But he says, you know what? Even though you folks are going through the fire, you are filled with joy inexpressible, verse 9. How on earth is that possible? Because they could take their homes, they could take everything they had, but they could not take their Lord away from them, and so they could not take their joy. And so the question today becomes, how do we access and experience and enjoy that same kind of untakeable, unbreakable, unshakable joy? How do we do it? Listen. You all know that many of the things that people seek joy in in our world today, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. No matter the different areas they look, it's not a lasting joy. But Jesus promises us a joy that is completely different. John 14, 27 and John 15, 11. Jesus promises us a joy that's not like the world's joy. It's not here one moment and gone the next. Jesus promises us a joy that does not dim or diminish or fade away in those two passages amongst others. And so again, the question is, how do I get it? How do I keep it? Here's the answer. Same way the Apostle Paul did. Philippians 3. He said, came to the point in my life that I was willing to sacrifice everything else and just put it on the altar. I came to the point where everything else in my life became rubbish by comparison to gaining the knowledge and knowing Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's really that simple. You know who the happiest Christians are? If you look around, there's people in this room that have gone through a lot of terrible trials in their lives. Some may still be. But do you know who the most joyful people are? 
those who have decided that they are going to seek and study and serve and suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ and put him first in every aspect of their lives, they have such a deep connection with him that there's nothing this world can do to take away their joy. Just like Paul. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, my life is no longer about me. It doesn't matter. My life is about Jesus Christ. It was that type of, it's not, a, it's not a, once a once a week thing, it's not a once a year thing, it's not a once a month thing, it is a moment by moment daily putting Christ first. Seeking him, studying him, serving him. And boy, did that make Paul happy. That's where his joy came from. And everyday Christians are the same way. I want you to turn with me to a passage in 2 Corinthians 8. Let me just show you real quickly that this is for everybody. Not just Paul. Not just Paul. Turn there with me, please. 2 Corinthians 8. First four verses. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. Remember, he's writing to church members, just like you and me. First century. He sowed on the churches of Macedonia, then in a great trial of affliction. Notice these people were under a great trial of affliction. The abundance of their joy. Listen. Having a great trial of affliction and an abundance of joy at the same time is not a contradiction in terms. You can be going through the one and still have the other. At least according to this, these common, everyday, quote-unquote, church members did that. He said that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, begging us, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. They had heard that there were other Christians that were in need, and these people that were supporting, you know, like the old, I'm going to date myself here, the old Bill Anderson song, four, you know, with like three Z or three O's, right? These people were dirt poor. They didn't have anything. And yet, in their affliction and poverty, they begged him. They said, let us help. How do people do that? And they were joyful about it. This would be like driving through Tulsa, driving through North Tulsa. You know how sometimes you're driving through Tulsa, you come to stoplight, and there's some folks on the side of the road with their signs and all that. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay? This would be like driving through North Tulsa and having a person at a stoplight like that come over and knock on your window because they knew that there were some homeless folks in Oklahoma City, and they were to say to you, a person who has nothing, knock on your window and say, hey, are you one of those, are you one of those Christians that's taking up a donation for the homeless in Oklahoma City? Here, let me give you my hat and my shoes. In the middle of winter. That's what this passage is like. People had nothing. Begged him. And were joyful to give. How is that even possible? Well, verse 5 tells you why. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord. That's how they could be that joyful. Jesus was their top priority. 
period. I want you to turn to me to one final passage as we get ready to close this morning. That's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Even if you know the whole chapter, you can quote it. Two questions as we get ready to close and consider a final text this morning. Let me ask you the question I already asked you earlier. Do you honestly, constantly, and consistently have that kind of unshakable, untakeable, unbreakable Christ-like joy that we have talked about this morning? Do you have that forever and ever and always being strengthened in your life? Do you? That's question number one. Question number two, if you do not, you want it? It's that simple. If you don't, do you want it? Because it begins, same place it began for Saul of Tarsus, begins when you decide to change your mind. That's what repent means. In Acts chapter 2, we see that word repent in verse 37. When they said, verse 37, they said, uh, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. It begins with changing your mind. Changing your mind and putting God at the top of your priority list over everything else. And then being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter says right there in Acts 2.38. You can read it in your own Bible. And please notice that after Peter told them that to repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Please notice he continues to preach to them in verse 40 telling them to be saved from this generation. Then those who, verse 41, gladly received his word were baptized. Here's the beginning of their joy. See the word gladly in verse 41? Gladly. Their joy is starting. They're beginning to get it. They gladly, they want to be saved. They wanted to put Christ first. They gladly received his word. You see that in that passage. And then they rise to walk in newness of life. We see that in many other passages. Acts 22, 16, Romans 6, 3 and 4, 1 Peter 3, 21. And what was this new life? This new life was... Seeking and serving and getting to know and suffering for God. Now, that's where you start to, to enjoy this incredible joy. You recall the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. After he saved, he went on his way what? Rejoicing. That's where it starts. How do we keep it beyond that? Well, here's how. Sometimes you get baptized and you're joyful and then it's kind of, you know, and you don't maintain it. It doesn't strengthen it. How do you strengthen it? Here's how. Here's how. By making the constant study of God's word, the continual fellowship of the saints, the every meeting of the Lord's church to take communion, and a powerful prayer life with God, your top priority on a daily and even moment-by-moment -moment basis. How do I know that? Because that's what they did. Look at verse 42. What does it say? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. That's how they maintained their happiness. Say, Doug, well, Doug, how do you know? How do you know that they were happy? Look at verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. After they were saved, they were happy people. They were rejoicing every day. That's how you maintain it. 
teaching, fellowship, breaking of breads, and prayers. How did God add to the church? Well, he added them to the church the same way that he had in verses 37 to 41. You want more joy in your life? This morning, if you're a visitor amongst us and some of the things you've heard intrigued you, let us know before you leave and we can get you an audio copy of the CD of this morning's lesson before you leave. If you want to know where it will be posted online later this week, let me know. Study these things. Take a look in God's Word. Check me out and see if the things that I have said are scriptural. I beg you to do that. But this morning, you've already heard enough. And you know that you don't have that joy. Maybe you were baptized. But you just haven't been able to maintain it. It certainly hasn't been strengthened. You need the prayers of the church that you'll be more committed in putting everything else second to Jesus Christ, that you'll study more and serve more and seek more. That's where the joy comes from. We'd love to pray for you, but maybe you're somebody here who's heard enough and you understand that you need that joy and you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me tell you what. I didn't grow up in the church. At 26 years old, it was a wonderful thing to come out of that baptistry. And no, according to this, my sins were forgiven. That's a joyful thing, let me tell you what. You want that joy this morning? If there's anything we can do to help you increase your joy, please let us come to the front 